flourishing families with Dr. Daughter Blatt, the switched-on kids chiropractor, and her passionate friends, sharing the secrets of inspiring wellness to help your families thrive. I'd like to welcome Susan Walton to our little podcast today. Susan Walton is from Specialize in Newcastle. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Lovely to be here. Oh, fantastic. So tell us a little bit about, you know, who are you? Oh, good. I'm Susan Walton, behavioural optometrist. Behavioural optometry is what I do. It's who I am. It's a passion. That sounds great. But what, what is behavioural optometry? Okay, behavioural optometry looks at way more holistic approach than you might get on your corner of the street practitioner who might be just testing your eyes and making sure you can see clearly and these are the glasses that you might get because you can't see so clearly. Uh, We do all those basic things and more. Okay. So when a child goes, normally when the child goes to have, or anyone I suppose would go in and and, um, have our eyes checked, is really just to assess whether we are nearsighted or farsighted, do we need a little bit of help with reading? Do you do more than that? We do do more than that. It is important to make sure somebody can see clearly and yes, are they short-sighted or have astigmatism. But many of the kids that come and see us are needing a broader approach than that. Uh, many of the times they are being sent in, that could be by another professional. Often it's a teacher or a parent who is seeing a lack in ability of their child when they sit in the classroom. They're not performing as well as they might have expected. So it could be a teacher, it could be another parent who identifies that one of the things that ought to be uh, useful to them is to go and have their eyes checked. So what do we do that's different? We're not just looking at how clearly they can see because, in fact, the great majority of kids I see can read the bottom row on the eye chart. What they are usually lacking in is the ability to use those two eyes accurately, smoothly, comfortably together to gather information. That's interesting. So if they can't um, optimally gather information, what effect will that have apart from, you say, not sitting and maybe performing as well at school? Uh, But what what effect will it have on on this child? could have uh, quite a few different effects. You're going to see behavioural changes. They may not be able to concentrate for very long and they either have to exert greater concentration visually to learn. Therefore, what's going to happen? They're going to be a lot more fatigued by the end of the day. Or because the extra effort that's required is just too much for them, they don't put the extra effort in and therefore they don't succeed on a... Academic basis. Yeah, fair enough. When you're a little person, if, if the challenge is too great, you just give up, don't you? Well, mostly you do, yeah. and you don't know why. You don't yeah. know that the challenge is great, so they can't put their hand up and say, Mummy, it's too hard. So it might show out in the fatigue levels, it might show out in meltdowns or outbursts coming home from school because they've held it together so well yeah. at school because they try so hard. Yeah. Or in fact, they don't hold it together very well at school. And there are behavioural issues that could show out and therefore they look like they're a naughty kid, but usually there's a reason why a kid's naughty that might be to do with challenges to their being able to perform appropriately. That's right. Uh, so does that affect a child outside of school? It can affect them uh, socially. It can affect them uh, from a sporting, um, physical point of view. 
uh, can affect them uh, psychologically. If you don't achieve very well, then that can just have you feeling less happy with yourself and others see things and might say, oh, you know, he's not a very smart kid, when in fact I know that I'm a smart cook. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what is it exactly that happens? Is it like uh, the, the explanation that I often hear from mums that have taken their, their kids to see you, uh, they talk about uh, the kids' eyes not moving together? Yep. Uh, two eyes, just like two legs, that have a pattern of movement together that we aren't born knowing how to use. So really it takes about seven years for your eyes to be really, really good at being a nice team that allows you to gather that information. But before you get to that seven years of age, you're already in school mm-hmm. at five and a half. And therefore the challenge, which is quite visually demanding as soon as you sit in a classroom, is not necessarily easily able to be met. And then you have to decide how you're going to cope with that not functioning well and meeting that challenge. Yeah. And that makes sense too when you're then saying it has to do with how they are in the playground or in the sporting field. Uh, if the eyes aren't working together, it might be a little bit harder to catch that ball. Yes. And if you can't catch the ball, then you start feeling that you are you know, a bit fumbly and a bit dumb and a bit slow. And it, it starts to affect your, like you say, your social skills and your self-esteem. Yeah, yeah, it can do. And it's not just uh, catching and looking at a moving target. It can actually be moving in space. Yeah. You would see kids like that. Spatially, they're not very aware of where they are and they might bump into kids or they, in fact, don't move around a whole lot and they're kind of a bit clumsy. Can they ride a bike? Can they swim? Or is it a challenge to do those? Or, in fact, do they not want to because it is a challenge? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so something that we uh, spend a fair bit of time on in this practice is looking at how their primitive reflexes, which um, have to do with movement patterns uh, that are established in the brain, uh, we look at how well the, the child is working with them. Does that have an impact on... No, actually, yeah, that's a stupid question. I know it has an no, impact on the eyes. No, yeah, it really does. And... For years and years, I've thought that to be an important part, and probably the last half a dozen years, I've actually added more work in both assessing and even working with primitive reflexes, despite the fact that the majority of people come in thinking, I'm going to be at the top end of the body and just looking at eyes. Yes. I'll have their child on the floor with my vision therapist, who is actually my lovely daughter, Hannah. Uh, Yay! She should be here too. Well, that's a thought. So Hannah will get down on the floor and actually do a series of assessments, which wouldn't surprise me if it's similar to some of the observations you're making from a motor point of view and a spatial point of view and a movement point of view with kids. And we may, in fact, go, hmm, we really have some issues, and one of the referral options is, in fact, chiropractic. Uh, But we also offer... Uh, a series of activities that a parent can carry out at home depending on where they live and what their thinking is uh, and it really can make a difference without even getting to the idea of doing something absolutely optometric with them. And I'll do that and want to do that sometimes before I um, carry on what might be needed from a a vision point of view. It's interesting um, with... When you, when you look at the way the brain develops and how, you know, initially we, we can see black and white, we can't see very much, but, you know, the, the visual acuity um, increases very quickly. Uh, 
whereas our movement um, control, well, it improves very quickly, but not to the same extent, uh, to, to the perfection anyway. Uh, but when you're looking at the primitive reflexes, and, and for example, how turning a head uh, for a little one would mean uh, like straightening an arm, but at the same time, it is focusing the eyes at the end of the arm, uh, so you can't actually, in the early days, separate vision from movement. And that obviously happens as you practice those movements and you gain control of your eyes, which you do at about, what, six months mark or something like that? Yeah, in that first six to nine months, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And you say that you can't separate it then, but we see kids who are in school and they can't separate it appropriately yeah. at that age. Yeah. And so therefore the extra concentration and effort involved with separating movement, separating an ability to um, hold your body in a trunk upright position. Yeah. Then I have to manipulate this little thing called a pencil. Yeah. And then I have to make my eyes point at the appropriate place on the pencil. Then I've got some thinking and remembering to do because mm, there's letters and numbers to make happen. Yeah. It's just huge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no wonder. <laughs> yeah. So, what, what else, do, do you see or do you assess adults for, for these sorts of things as well? Yeah, we do. Uh, it depends what presents itself. Um, we are now seeing uh, numbers of people coming in and findings from a brain post brain injury situation. Okay. So, that can be uh, cerebral vascular accident, stroke, uh, and that sort of thing. It could be a traumatic brain accident. It could be a car accidents. That's yeah. bigger. Yeah. Uh, right through to mild concussion. Now, mild, I put in those quotation marks because concussion can be more uh, life-changing and impactful than people realise. So yeah. we're having people coming and Lifelong effects. Uh, yeah, lifelong. Uh, um, there are some things that we can try to help to support those systems that, in fact, in some areas, from a brain perspective, revert back to some of those primitive functioning areas. And if you can help to support improved control of those functions, it can help those people. So you you help them, you help support uh, the, uh, um, well, you said potentially the, the vision therapy exercises. Uh, uh, and what, what do you do with the glasses? What's different in the glasses? Yeah, well, the, remember, glasses are my, my biggest tool in yeah. my toolbox. Yes. So there are a few different ways you can use glasses. Most people think of glasses in the common way, which says, oh, I can't see that small thing over there. Therefore, I put my glasses on. Thank you very much. Now I can see. I would label that as a compensatory type of lens compensates for the fact that things are blurry. I put on my glasses and it's not blurry. But as soon as I take them off again, it's blurry again, so I'm compensating. When we're prescribing for these kids who can, in fact, see quite clearly, what I'm then supplying is a support lens or a therapeutic lens. It supports the poor function of the two eyes together, either to point or to focus so that I can stay looking, I can track, I can follow and I can think and do while I'm looking without so much effort from the brain having to go just for the looking. So what sort of lenses? Um, they're not very strong powered. They have low powers, and I often use small amounts of special prisms, sometimes tints, again, small, low uh, tints, not dark tints, 
that can just have a very subtle but sometimes powerful and many times powerful impact to support what is a very difficult uh, looking problem for that child. So I'm interested to know, given that uh, the ability to focus um, and the ability to make your eyes move smoothly across the page is controlled by different muscles, cranial nerves and, and obviously muscles. So are you basically, when you say that this is a support mechanism, are you trying to, um, it's a bit like going to the gym for the eyes, is that, is that what the prism does? No, I think I would put that differently because if you're going to the gym, it's likely that you're trying to strengthen muscles. Yeah. Whereas I would say that the eye muscles are 300 times stronger than they need to be to do the task. Mm -hmm. It's more in the finesse and the control. Therefore, we're talking at a neural level. Right. Yeah. So the control of really, really fine, accurate pointing of the two eyes to be in the same place at the same time and stay there and also get things in focus and keep them in focus whilst I move them, That's it's the finesse. So it's really a neuromuscular. Yeah. That, that's awesome, though, because that takes us to that you know, buzzword that everyone's using these days with the neuroplasticity. What you're basically creating is a better input so the brain can use that information to make the changes that it, you know, that it would should have maybe done by itself, but it just needed a bit of a helping hand. Exactly, and I think there are ranges of interference pathways that uh, I now talk about um, all the time in the practice. One of the biggies these days is devices. <laughs> you knew what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, the suspense was not very high. <laughs> no, 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 you know, this, this digital world, I love it. I, I love this digital world. But I'm finding myself having to be quite outspoken in my consulting room when um, I have a parent who has another child in there while I'm testing their child, and it's often the younger Sydney, and they hand over a phone to keep them quiet. And I actually object if I see it at the appropriate time. Say, oh, we're going to not do that in the first instance. Here's my toy box yeah. that may well already be open. Yeah. Let's do these blocks. Yeah. Let's you know, keep them otherwise involved. And I think our use of digital devices is uh, overtaking what we used to do as parents and thinking about the developing abilities that kids really need to experience. Um, it's potentially being lost. And you know, I'm giving as much advice and uh, guidance as possible and trying to people un <coughs> understand why, why I'm looking to intervene. It's this developmental stuff that we're talking about. We have to develop the ability to understand, use and control our sensory systems. And that's mostly visual, auditory and motor. Um, but also the ability to sit and occupy yourself. Yeah. You know, there are studies showing that if a youngster can't sit and occupy themselves, they are more likely to be heading down a path of less productivity as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. I read a study, and you would probably know this more than me, but about uh, Singaporean school children, um, something like 97% of them being nearsighted yeah. because they have spent most of their early childhood years looking at a screen or looking at a book and being still 
rather than um, being out and being exposed to the ball that's com- coming flying from an angle that didn't see him and having to move and have to quickly move their eyes. And, um, yeah, exactly that. I, I have to say that I don't think we truly, truly know the, the trouble mechanism why we have uh, people becoming short-sighted. Um, and absolutely, they talk about exposure to sunlight and outdoor conditions yeah. and movement and outdoor play. And even, I shouldn't call it risk-taking, but the risk-taking play, climb a tree and you're allowed to fall out and learn what that means. We don't want you to fall on your head and have a concussion, of course. But that's how I grew up. Um, We we were playing in the street until it was dark and you had to be in for dark and by then you were pretty hungry anyway. Um, But you were out there moving the whole time. Uh, You were seeing, uh, looking... Far and near, um, whereas now kids can be seen outside in quotation marks playing because they've got a device in their hand. They're not moving, they're not looking far, they're not talking, they're not communicating. You know, social languages, body languages, well, it's a little bit scary, sad, and all of that. Yeah, and it just takes us back to, I mean, there's there's a a little bit of everything needed in everyone's lives. Um, you know, screens, they are part of uh, the world in 2019, but if we can remember that they don't take over our lives, that, that's probably a really useful little hint. <laughs> um, now, you mentioned, um, I find that interesting, you mentioned the different uh, tinting in the glasses, uh, but why, why would you put in a different colour? Okay, that's a good question. I actually don't use a whole lot of tint, when I'm thinking tint, I'm more commonly thinking uh, brain injury. Okay. Uh, the neural system actually uh, tends to feel quite calm if I use a little bit of light blue is a really common one. Right. Uh, there are a few other tints. Uh, FL41 can be quite good for headache. Now, the FL41 is... It's a bit more pinky brown. Okay. Um, but there are certainly wavelengths of light, specific wavelengths of light. So think rainbow. You've got a blue end, at, blues at one end, and you've got the, the reds at the other end. All the different wavelengths in between can have an impact on the way we live our lives. Now, the medical field is already using colours. We use coloured lights if a baby is born with jaundice. Yeah. We can use coloured lights to deal with um, jet lag. We can use coloured lights to help with uh, depressive con- or depressed people. Yeah. Uh, so those are already being utilised. Not to mention lasers in a huge array of ways that are used medically. Uh, I do do some uh, active use of colours as specific wavelengths uh, that can help with um, with um, or ability to concentrate with headache at times. So I don't treat these symptoms, but it can uh, allow somebody to have their system more open to the learning before we actually go into the vision for the room for training. So you don't necessarily use the colours as I have heard um, uh, people saying that, and now I'm slightly dyslexic, so I can't remember left or right, but that the shorter wavelengths stimulate one side of the brain and the longer wavelengths stimulate the other. Um, so you're not using them from that perspective, nor the early lenses 
No, I, I don't specifically use either of those particular options. Yes, oil lenses are out there, and I do see them from time to time coming. Um, their utilisation of, of tinted lenses is quite different to uh, anything I do. Yeah. Um, the tints that I'm using when I'm talking about uh, some people who come in with significant issues with uh, being overwhelmed by light, it could be bright lights in shopping centres, yeah. uh, are very mild tints that can actually have quite a good impact on some of these people. Yeah. So how, how did you end up um, in behavioural optometry? I know um, we were just talking about, you know... Probably good luck at the time. Okay, yeah. I, I wasn't trained as uh, a behavioural optometrist at university. And even now, we do our basic training, which is a uh, generalist type of training. Uh, for me, almost 40 years ago. Cool. <laughs> um, almost four years, but it's now a five-year degree course. Yes. Um, you finish your training and you're... A little license in hand that says I can go and test eyes and practice optometry. Uh, I was very lucky that once I opened my own practice after something like about four years, I worked for another uh, practitioner, which was just a wonderful grounding. Yes. Uh, because you think you know lots out of university, but there's all there's a real world to learn about, so that was good. Um, opening my own practice and then looking at my new husband at the time and going, oh, I wonder what we should do, should I look at something specialty, and the first uh, Children's Vision Conference came up, it was in Sydney, I went along, and lo and behold, I was kind of just a bit lucky to be right place, right time, the beginning of ACBO. Okay. And what is ACBO? Australasian College of Behavioural Optometrists was formed in 1986, I was there, I'm number 22, founding member. Oh, okay. Now, uh, you know, within a few years, a fellow of ACBO which means that that's the highest level that they, you know, we aspire to, that is really just the beginning anyway. You start there and move on. Mm-hmm. So yeah. lots of the training is actually weekend conferences. Uh, yeah, we spend a lot of time <sighs> doing that. But you're there with like-minded practitioners who are free with offering information, we share information from each other. Yeah. Oh, it's my tribe. Uh, that's yeah. why I said at the beginning, it's my passion, it's my uh, life. Uh, very lucky. So you, you never had a particular experience that said, ooh, uh, I need to learn more, I, I have this child, or, or anyone that you felt that you really had that passion developed from that you felt like you needed to help? Not back then specifically, but let me tell you, umpteen times since then and yeah. even now. Yeah. And I'm very lucky that I have this um, family of behavioural optometrists out there. And now we, we probably even add a, a bit of an extra term, we call ourselves neuro-behavioural oh, optometrists okay. or neuro-rehabilitation um, optometrists. You know, as recent as a couple of weeks ago, I had a lady come in, had been sent to me specifically by a GP, had something like 30 degrees tipped to the side because otherwise she had double vision and had had all her life. So... I had enough answers to go, well, I can probably do something about this, yeah. but not enough experience of, I've done this 55 times, I know exactly what to do. Went to, by email, digital, yeah, yeah. to a number of my colleagues, and just last week had her in a much straighter position using some prisms that awesome. we were then going to 
and to her prescription. Okay. So, you know, there are always... Oh, very satisfying yeah. for her and for you. Well, I hope so. so she hasn't got there yet, but we're right. on the path. That's right. And just as we're finishing up, do you have any great advice for parents that may be listening to us chatting away? I do. Um, early eye exam. And don't necessarily just rely on the fact that they may have had a bit of a test at school because it's not even an eye exam. It's a screening only. Uh, so have your children have a full comprehensive eye exam before they start school, probably even before they start preschool because they start to get quite uh, visually demanding once they're in the preschool setting these days. Uh, and... If at all possible, see if you can check that that person you're about to see is skilled in dealing with kids. Because kids are a, a different um, different beast, if you like. <laughs> they definitely are. I actually mostly find they're pretty nice little beasts. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and a comprehensive exam for me is a 45-minute eye exam. Yeah. Yeah, that's not just having a quick glance two minutes later. No, <laughs> no exactly not. Okay, and if you can tell us where where can people find you? Oh, our location is uh, right in the CBD. So we're in King Street, 245 King Street, and we've been in that location now for 10 years. So we have um, two wonderful staff members out front. So we have Kelly Receptionist and we have Melinda Dispenser. My lovely daughter Hannah is our trained vision therapist, so we have a fully equipped vision therapy room that does lots of uh, looking, listening, thinking, doing type, type activities that can help assist your child and perhaps an adult. Yeah. And, uh, and I get to do the work in my little lovely box that is my consultant. <laughs> a whole bunch of my tools. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, talking about tech. Yeah. Uh, website, maybe? I do have a website, so if you just look up Susan Walton or an optometrist, you'll find me, but it's susanwaltonoptometrist.com.au. It's a bit of a mouthful, that optometrist word, but susanwaltonoptometrist.com.au. We actually do have two Facebook pages attached to that. One is Susan Walton Optometrist, the other is Susan Walton Vision Therapy. So vision therapy is lots of information that we do have uh, linked there, talking about vision development and how to think about uh, diet and gut and eyes and health and uh, advice on use for digital devices and play for kids. So there's some interesting stuff out there for parents. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming up. Thanks so much for sharing our passion. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Family Chiropractic or the host. Brought to you by Family Chiropractic Centre, Charlestown. Serving the families in Newcastle, Lake Macquarie and Charlestown.